Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Now more than ever, conversations around legal technology and innovation can be incredibly overwhelming, especially for those who are worried about the implications of generative AI. Our guest today helps facilitate these important discussions with the goal of making new technology less intimidating for lawyers. Catherine Casey, at, is Chief Growth Officer at Reveal Brainspace, a cloud-based provider of e-discovery software, which helps legal professionals solve complex discovery problems. Prior to joining the company, she served as a practitioner for multiple legal tech firms, ran a global tech practice for a top 10 law firm, and was a national subject matter expert on e-discovery, cyber, and legal tech at KPMG, and then PwC. While serving these many roles, Kat developed her own brand as the TechnoCat, speaking and writing on AI and other subjects in tech across various platforms. Today, at Reveal Brainspace, she leads marketing and direction for the company's legal tech solutions and frequently guest lectures on e-discovery, emerging data, and all things legal AI. In our wide-ranging conversation, Kat talks about being a recovering introvert, how ChatGPT will change how we conduct research, her fascinating work at Reveal Brainspace, and her thoughts on the future of legal tech. It was great connecting with Kat, and I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I did having it. Thank you very much for listening. Kat, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Any stage I can sparkle on, I want to sparkle on. <laughs> Indeed you do. You've carved out such an interesting persona for yourself as TechnoCat and your role at Reveal Brainspace being, I don't know quite how to describe it, but sort of this middle person between technologists and lawyers and sort of the, the source to go to. It's such an interesting space you, you've carved out. I like to think of myself kind of like a translator. Um, studying existential philosophy is not the most intuitive path to being a person that talks about AI. And I realized that there were a lot of lawyers that had had not maybe quite as weird, German and grumpy of a path, but definitely not a math and STEM and science path. And so figuring out how to talk to them in a way that would have resonated with me was kind of the first part. And then once I figured out, hey, people are kind of scared of tech, I can make them less afraid. Then I was like, let me do it on every platform, every path from webinars to podcasts to you name it to my website. I just want to be everywhere so that people embrace technology before they fall behind. Well, you certainly do seem to be everywhere. <laughs> you're, you're being very successful. Let's talk a little bit about the path that led you to this stage of, of, of your career. If I have this right, you wanted to be a lawyer at 12 and then went to law school and decided you didn't want to be a lawyer. I did. I did. Well, I was on the swing when I was like 12 and I'm like, I'm really good at math. So I could be a doctor and I'm good at words and stuff. So I could be a lawyer. And I'm like, oh, you know what? If I make a mistake, I can appeal as a lawyer. It might be more permanent as a doctor. But yeah, I, I studied philosophy. I did debate. And I really was thinking that the practice of law would be more about the, the thinking part of law. And it was at least the, the parts I was good at. It was very memorization and drafting. And I wasn't excited about it. But I so I, you know, I went and I, I tried something different. Again, very intuitive. I was like, let me see if I can maybe sell something. I don't know. My dad did that. What's the grossest type of sales I can think of? Well, definitely cars. So let me sell cars, but only fancy cars because, you know, I don't want to get my hands too dirty. And so I ended up selling BMWs for about three, four months, was the top grossing BMW salesperson in North America and sold it 
to someone that happened to marry up technology and law in this e-discovery space, total happenstance. And so I got pulled into like 17, 18 years ago, the e-discovery space where I could take the gift of gab and my legal training and background and the fact that I grew up in a tech family. And 17 years ago, I started doing it and maybe 14 years ago, I had a, a CEO who was my boss physically push me on stage. He's like, Kat, you need to be talking and out there. And I was like, no, I don't want to. I'm so shy. I know no one believes it now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, wait a minute. What? I know. I was, well, I was an introvert. I'm, I'm a recovering introvert. I like to say. And, you know, I, I, I did debate so I could figure out how to turn my thoughts into words without turning 18 shades of red. But yeah. So I had a, the CEO pushed me on stage. And so then I started talking and writing and thinking about all things AI and technology. And I kind of, I built this brand separate from my career. Initially, it was eDiscovery Cat because I was only doing electronic discovery. About three years ago, I switched to TechnoCat because I was doing bigger stuff. But I started, you know, going out there and writing and speaking kind of as a side job, a side hustle, um, if you will. Not that I was paid. It was just I was hustling out there to educate people. And then I realized I really loved that part of my job. So I, you know, spent some years building the e-discovery program as a national subject matter expert at KPMG and PwC, ran Gibson and Dunn's global technology program. But then I made the leap and I, I became thought leader and innovator for uh, an AI company. And then I came over to Reveal and I, you know, I, I run the marketing, I co-lead M&A, I help lead sales, and then I'm their influencer. I'm out there writing and speaking and living out of a suitcase, if you will, trying to get people to embrace technology. And so it's been kind of a journey that I've woven into this role that, I mean, frankly, I, I'm lucky I've got a great CEO because he's like, Kat, what do you want to do? And I'm, I'm like, I'd like to do this, this, and this. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Cat, go do cat things. And he's just kind of let me loose. You know, it, it's amazing when you think about it. So you, you've got a CEO now that sort of has let you loose. You had a CEO that pushed you out on stage. I did, I did. And you had a, a, a customer lure you into the discovery phase. These, these... I committed for one year. I'm like one year only, 18 years later. <laughs> well, that does tend to happen to us. As you look back over your career, you've worked for all sorts of different kinds of companies, you know, e-discovery companies and alternative service providers and big four and MO10, I've lost track of, of, of where they are. I assume you've pulled pieces from each one of those experiences that are probably different. Sort of what, if, what did you learn from each of those categories of companies that you've sort of meshed into your work today? Yeah. I mean, I, I started my journey on the people side of e-discovery. So managing those teams of 500 attorneys. So I learned the language of discovery and the way case teams worked with lawyers on that side. And then I realized, hey, I should really understand the technology. So then I went to working at the LSPs that were selling the software to understand the technology. And that was sort of in that window is when I started being out there and speaking, because when you are selling as a legal service provider, branding and being out there and being visible is important. So I started doing some social media and some writing, but I didn't really get my teeth, my, my technical chops, if you will, until I went to the big four. And I just got thrown into all of these different types of projects, you know, from you know, imaging the Theranos laptops to, I mean, you name it. I probably can't even talk about all the crazy stuff I did, but it sort of forced me to grow in my understanding of legal technology. And then going over at the, the law firm, that gave me the perspective of, okay, here's the challenges that lawyers are facing. And yes, my legal background, but being in the firm gave me that context and that empathy and really helped me understand the 
overarching kind of enterprise level how this all works. And then when I moved over to the the software company as a, a chief innovation officer, that was when I was able to take that brand stuff I've been doing. So the Technocat website, the speaking and the writing and make that a more concerted effort. I couldn't really do it as much at the big four and at, at Gibson because there's just so much potential conflict. If I talk about Coca-Cola and they're a client, I might get in trouble. But so when I went to the, the last software company, I was able to start bringing that all in together. And it was very much focused just on the brand stuff, just on the being out there and talking, which I liked. But then I realized in this role, I want to be building something and I want to seat at the table. I want to be part of leadership. I want to be taking all this insight from being a, a buyer to being a technology seller to being building case teams to inform how we build our technology. And I want to build a program. So I was able to kind of weave all of these different threads into my current role, which is I'm part of the executive leadership team helping to kind of decide, you know, what companies we buy and where we go as an organization. But then I'm also out there and I'm speaking and talking and educating still. And then I'm also doing the branding stuff. So what I did for myself, I'm applying to an organization now. And so it's been kind of a stepwise approach of taking each thread and now they're kind of all woven together. And, you know, it's not the pinnacle because I only turned 40 this year, but it is a, a capstone to all these different threads I was weaving in parallel. Was the time you spent at Gibson the first time, what I think I heard you say, was it sort of the first time you'd sort of worked in the trenches on the lawyer side? Yeah, because I've been working with case teams since I was 23. So like when I was had... 500 attorneys. I was working with the law firm and the corporate counsel. And the, like I was working with all of that. I was in the trenches, but it was the first time I was on the side of, I am the outside counsel. I'm at the law firm and understanding their pressures because they're, they're different from a corporate client's pressure. They're different from the LSP's pressure. And so most people work their way up in a law firm. I just came right in at the top because, you know, why not? <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> painfully humble. Like, I, I don't know if you can tell, painfully humble. There you go. So what did you see differently from your seat at Gibson Dunn than you had seen from handling large case teams? What what were those pressures and, and difference of behaviors that you were seeing? Well, I, I think I, it helped me contextualize the discovery team at the law firm in the context of the whole firm. Because when I was when I was managing a big case and the law firm was my client, I thought of the e-discovery people as kind of the VL end all. When I was inside, I was able to learn like, no, there's all these competing pressures. You are not a lawyer with a book of business, you are a, a supporting function. And so there's pressures that they have to balance. And so sometimes when someone was taking forever to get back about an agreement or, you know, they, they weren't being responsive, I would get frustrated. Once I was in the law firm, I realized like, oh no, there's 18 things. They may be balancing the ball in the background. I think it also helped me to understand the, the limitations that a lot of firms have in not innovating, but in bringing in new technology. It's an 18-month process. And so there's a lot more concerns about risk, a lot more, just a lot more competing pressures I wouldn't have been aware of. A lot more opportunity too. I, I got to touch a lot more cases, but it was um, there was more finesse to it than I realized when I was outside looking in. That's got to be informative in your current position. <laughs> hundred percent. I mean, I can talk to my team as, hey, when I was buying technology, here were the pressures I had. Or, hey, you know, this was something a certain company or a certain type of company didn't have that I wish we had, you know. And so I can kind of speak as I was the person you want to like this technology or I was this person afraid of the technology. Not that I was afraid, but, you know, whatever the case may be. So. E-discovery has had such an interesting adoption arc. Mm -hmm. And as we, we talk about generative AI now and everybody's freaked out about it, I think back about the path of e-discovery where I've been at this a few more decades than you have. 
I, I remember actually being one of those people sitting in a dusty room looking at boxes of documents. Oh, I remember that too. Yeah, technology. Actual bait stamp, that's, you know. Oh, my God. There aren't that many people that remember bait stamping. Uh-huh. But technology comes in and everybody's freaked out and it's going to take our jobs and we can't do it right. You know, now it's not a question of whether you're going to use the technology. It's which technology you're going to use, which one has the best feature sets. Do you see that sort of adoption curve sort of happening as we talk about generative AI broadly, albeit perhaps on a faster basis? I mean, faster is the key. I remember talking with Judge Peck in 08 or 09 about De Silva Moore, and I thought, oh, once we have TAR approved by the bench, it's going to just be adopted gangbusters. And then, you know, 10 years later, it's still, hey, do we even email thread, right? I feel that the flip that has happened with generative AI, especially with ChatGPT, is it's mainstream. There was a South Park episode about it. My nephew's using it. My grandpa. There's a South Park expert? Yes. It's, oh, a, it's my... about it and drafted. Half of the episode was done by ChatGPT, right? Oh. So, like, we're talking mainstream. It's This is the dot-com bubble, if you will. But if you think of the dot-com bubble, yeah, the stocks may have eventually devalued a little, but the underlying tech was transformative. And the curves of adoption we're seeing with generative AI blow internet out of the water. So generative AI is adopted by clients. Whether or not people want to use it in their practice as the technology they use, who knows? But their clients are using it and they're going to start demanding it. And I think the why on that is, well, I mean, for one thing, I have it on my cell phone. 1.39 billion people can download the app and have it on their cell phone. But the other thing is it's easy to use. It doesn't feel like AI. I don't need to understand Lambda calculus. I don't need a linguist. I can type in stuff with my typos and all, which there's many. And ChatGPT cuts through the noise. It's sort of a balance of signal and noise. That's changing information retrieval, right? And it's everywhere. And I was telling someone this morning, I've been Googling for 20 something years. And in six months, since November 30th, 2022, I've gone from Google first whatever else research second to chat GPT, then Google, then research. And that, that's a pretty transformative pivot in six months. No, it's right. And it, it's the democratization of this technology that is so amazing. And it, it raises so many issues mm-hmm. beyond just whether people use it in their daily law practice that I'm not sure we're ready. We, we should have been ready for it because, you know, it's not like this was secret that they were working on this type of technology. I don't think anyone guessed it would have the adoption it did. Like it was the right moment in time. But I, I'm, I've never seen the industry make a pivot like this, aside from in 06, when literally it went from no E to E in e-discovery. But like everyone's talking about it. Every conference I've gone to, and even people I wouldn't expect to be, like people who have been firmly, not Luddites, but close enough, are talking about this. And it, it's it's mind-blowing. Well, I think it's because of the characteristics you described before, it's suddenly this, you know, OpenAI released this tool into the wild that is very human-like and very easy to access, which raises all kinds of problems with it because it's... Oh, yeah. It, oh, can, yeah. it, it can hallucinate very convincingly. Yeah, I feel bad for the... I think the sanctions came out today for the Avianca case where the poor junior associate put into ChatGPT for some citations and cases and then just copy and pasted them. But that goes to something... Everyone should know, trust, but verify. Like when Wikipedia came out, you wouldn't just copy, paste and go. You would like go into the sources and make sure that it was actually saying what you thought it was saying. You've got to go to that next level and, and validate what you're getting, not just copy, paste. 
Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting that the initial press was so look at what a bad thing ChatGPT is, and clearly ChatGPT made some stuff up. But fundamentally, as a lawyer, I mean, I remember back in my days supervising associates. If they cited a case, I would actually read the case just to make sure they were citing yeah. it right. I don't know why the technology you're using is any different. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't copy and paste what a first year gave you. You wouldn't just send it in blindly, right? And frankly. I feel badly that it's really the associate that did the, the copy pasting that's getting in trouble because the supervising attorneys are the ones that drop the ball, you know? No, I think that's I mean, right. It would have literally just taken like putting the case citation into Lexis or Westlaw to see, does the case exist, you know? Or to say, include a copy of the case with me yeah. when yeah. you hand me the draft of the brief. Yeah. So, and it's it's not, generative AI is interesting too, because we're thinking chat GPT, but there's a whole bunch of evidentiary headaches that are potentially going to come up. I don't know if you saw, but there was a generative AI created deep fake of the Pope in a, I think they call it a drip, but it looked like a big puffer coat. I don't know. A puffer coat, in the white puffer coat. Yeah, yeah I've used it. It's a mid journey. Yeah. And I use mid journey all the time, but the crazy thing is if someone as visible as the Pope can be believed in a deep fake, that has some big evidentiary validation, authentication, things that are going to come up, you know, because it was, you know, I believed it for like a minute. Well, you know, and what's interesting about that, that that particular and those others, the Pope seems to be a good subject for mid-journey users to make stuff up about. But there are what's what's both interesting and fascinating about that is that there are small things that are wrong with the picture that are because the programs are properly the hands, right? which as these programs learn and get better, you're not even going to be able to see those. And they're already fixing that. Like I, I do a lot with MidJourney. I think every blog I've written for the last four months, I've, I've used generative pictures because it's easier than Googling and trying to find one and get the rights to it. It's improving. The other thing is generative AI is starting to get baked into tools you may not be thinking it's baked into. Like Adobe Photoshop now has like a, an AI complete the picture. What is that? It's generative AI. It, it'll add stuff to a picture. So if you expand it by however many pixels, it will generate stuff. And Microsoft is adding in generative AI uh, with uh, their investment into ChatGPT OpenAI. So it's it's going to be harder and harder to unwind when it happened, and it's going to be more and more believable. So I think there'll be a whole cottage industry, not just forensic investigation, but forensic AI identification or validation or whatever they're going to call it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting point because right now people seem focused on ChatGPT and it's bad and we need to bar it or we need to regulate it. But they're not looking around the corner to the point you're making, which is this technology is going to be embedded in Microsoft and in Apple and in Google and in all of those things that we just use as a matter of course. And how you, I mean, for example, there's some judges in, in, in light of the, I think, I think it's pronounced Avianza. Yeah, yeah. Airline case that said you've got to tell us how you've used generative AI. We're going to come to the point where you're not going to know whether you're using generative AI. It's just it's just functionality. Well, and I foresee it being like like Jenga, right? It's going to be one piece of a like building or whatever, one piece of a, a structure, right? So maybe it was used in part of the research phase, embedded in Word, but then you edit it in a third party app. Like it's going to be hard to unwind even what was input by generative versus human. And I mean, I've played around a fair amount with the AI detectors and all of that, and they're bad to say the least. A fair number of my fully human generated stuff they've said is half AI and a full, as much of AI generated stuff they said is 100% human. So it's 
I feel bad for students these days that are getting flagged for for AI created content when it's just like, hey, no, I just write like a robot. I'm sorry. All right. So you you sit at the intersection between lawyers and technology, and but let's stay on the generative AI piece for a moment. But you've been working with AI for for a long time. I mean, Reveal Brain Space has been an AI based company for as long as I've heard. I can remember back seeing a presentation when it was just Brain Space. You know, talking about AI. You know, back many years ago. What are the biggest barriers or, that you have to overcome in dealing with technological fear by lawyers? You know, it, it's a couple fold. One is the billable hour. So people are, as a lawyer, speed is not necessarily rewarded, right? You want to bill more because that's how you demonstrate that you're working hard and achieve bonus. So there's a fear that the efficiency that AI drives will impact billable hour, and it will. But of course, firm, it will. But firms haven't moved to AFAs yet, so alternative fee agreements, and so there is that. And I think they're going to have to move database, but there's that pressure. There's the fear of the unknown. I don't know how it works. And it's interesting because people felt much more that way when it felt more like AI, like TAR 1.0, where you needed linguists and statisticians and iterations and all of that. Scary. Now, ChatGPT, which is arguably way more AI, way more advanced, people are not even thinking twice about using it. So that may change um, as AI and legal becomes more human centric and designed for a human interface, not necessarily a technologist interface. The other is that I feel there is a trust of the output issue. Like, how do I know it's it's accurate, right? And usually you'll use statistical sampling or frankly have a human in the loop, but there's that perception of, oh, I don't trust the black box. I don't trust when hitting an easy button. I mean, all of that I think is ameliorated by, you know, explaining it's not Terminator, right? It's not Skynet coming down, taking your jobs. It's, I like to say it's Iron Man, right? So it's you as Tony Stark, right? The human that is using all this technology. That's your Iron Man suit. And when you're not using it, it's gathering dust. When you are using it, it's just telling you stuff that you can then decide what to do with. Like, uh, you know, I see that map. I'm not going to blow it up, whatever, right? If you're Tony Stark, hopefully you're not blowing anything up. But I think if people can make that jump from artificial intelligence, Terminator and Skynet and replacing jobs to Iron Man, augmenting your intelligence and supercharging you, it's a less scary conversation. We're in the process of people realizing that, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's such an interesting moment, isn't it? You made an observation. I want to I want to pull on the thread a little bit about AFAs because I, I've seen you make this observation before that this is going to lead to more AFAs. So I'm, I'm a buyer mm-hmm. of services, and I believe that this technology is going to fundamentally change the efficiency metrics of the way law firms deliver services. Why would I go to an AFA now when all of the data that the law firms have is based on pre-generative AI work. And I would worry that the pricing of an AFA would be based on not enough data to show the efficiencies that you could gain. I think that it goes down to predictability, right? If I am a corporate client and I want to budget for my entire litigation portfolio, back in the day when I was selling, I knew people that would pay more for the predictable flat dollar amount, right? I'm not going to charge you- per hour, whatever. So predictability. I also think that as AFAs are introduced, there probably will be whichever is the lesser option, right? So you maybe will be given the report at the end of the year and you can kind of choose, do you want the billable or do you want the AFA? I also think it will actually be corporate clients that are dictating it and potentially even dictating what they think the bands of pricing are based on what the efficiencies are. You've got to remember the corporate buyers, at least for the AMLA, whatever firms, the top, top, are very sophisticated. They're using AI. When I was in the firm, I had an insurance client that 
went back five years and was doing a comparative analysis of billable hours by matter, by type of task, and then asking questions. Why did you have X associates and X partners on this one? And you had fewer partners on this one. So I think sophisticated clients will probably dictate it. I think that predictability. And then I also think they'll, they'll probably be, uh, you know, some sort of bake off where they, they show the value of A versus B. Um, I could be wrong, but that, that's my gut on it. No, that, that all makes sense to me. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this technology has an impact on pricing structures, on staffing models, and on training. Because I think the businesses that are successful will, will learn how to harness and to use your, I love, I love the Iron Man analogy. You use dog mitts. Yeah. I wish it wasn't a Disney product or I would have already written the book with that title, but I'm pretty sure I would be sued. So yeah, they got lots of lawyers. They, can, oh, they, they do. They do. Yeah, yeah. I could be like, it's like the Iron Man race and they would, they would call me out for totally being a liar. So, <laughs> but so let, let's shift a little bit and talk about reveal brain space. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what the product is and you've been very successful in a, let's be honest, a crowded space. What is it that differentiates what's made the company so successful in not a lot of blue ocean? Yeah. So Reveal's been the leader of AI period for a while. And part of that is by acquiring NextLP, which was way, way ahead of the curve when it came to AI models, and then Brainspace, which had the best visual AI out there and bringing them together. And so what we can say is, hey, we have been leading the charge and building technology that is human-centric, so designed to be easy for humans that are not necessarily technologists to use, but very powerful, the most powerful AI with the most beautiful AI. And we've been talking about, we are at an inflection point where you can't really opt out of AI anymore. You're going to have to use it. So why not go with a company that is you know, the leader of sentiment analysis, the leader of concept visualization or social network analysis, who's talking to who or who has... We have a Netflix library of AI models. So we're all about making AI easy to use, but very powerful. And that's really resonated with the market. There's other technology that has AI in it, but it hasn't necessarily been AI from its inception. Um, and there's other tech that you can partner up with AI, but the, the baseline tech is not very AI focused. And so they're playing catch up. So as the world shifts to all in on AI, you want to work with a company that's building AI that is easy for lawyers of any technology acumen, any technology fluency, if you will, to use um, so that they can sort of, I don't know, have their own Iron Man suit and sort of get ahead of the curve. And it's been an inflection point. There wasn't a lot of appetite really until maybe two years ago and more so in the last nine, eight months for people to move off of the legacy platforms that are out there. It's sort of that you never get in trouble. For, you don't get fired for buying IBM. That was sort of the mentality. Right. Yeah, like I get that. Back, right. So we are a little newer, a little sexier, and and folks are realizing we still have the same powerful workhorse under the the, the pretty sexy visuals, um, so that you're not going to get fired for going to us. We still have all all the basic stuff you expect, but then all the extra added powerful AI to kind of take you to that next chapter, and it's really resonated with people. Yeah, it it must be an interesting inflection point uh, for the company. Is that what attracted you to reveal Brainspace the the product, or was it the- culture? You know, it really was. I, I had never met Wendell, the CEO, before my mentor, Mike Bryant, he's sort of a well-known uh, investor guy in the industry, said, hey, Kat, you need to meet this guy. And it was actually, I met him about a month and a half before they acquired Brainspace. And so I was talking with them. I really liked the people. I liked the mentality. 
But I was like, ah, I don't really know. And he's like, well, I can't say this publicly, but Reveal is going to be acquiring Brainspace. And that vision of really powerful AI plus really beautiful AI at the moment in time, I was like, oh, I, I can do something amazing with that. And so I, I came right on board. I think I was one of the first hires after the merger was announced. And it was it was a right place in time, but it was the vision of powerful techie, techie AI that might've been scary to people and beautiful AI that maybe people didn't think was AI enough or was uh, was technical enough, marrying them together. And then it's like, oh my gosh, there's, there's nothing that can rival that. So it, it felt like the right exact moment in time. And it really, I mean, you can tell by how much the visibility is blown up that kind of, I like to say it's my fault, but I think it probably is a fair amount to do with the tech itself. <laughs> I don't hurt, I don't hurt, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have a great product to sell and put it, put it with tremendous people and you can do great things. You spend a lot of time going around speaking at conferences. I know you're legal week. So look around the corner for us based on sort of your interactions with people and what you've seen, what you've seen. I'm not looking for anything proprietary from Reveal Brainspace, but where do you see the profession going from a technology standpoint? We've touched a little bit on it, but pull that thread a little bit for me. I think at the most basic, basic level, it's going to go from opting in to using technology to you have to have a really good reason to opt out, right? The default is going to be you're embracing technology. And I think to that end, as more people that maybe aren't as techy in nature start using it, there's going to be a push to make AI more user-friendly. Think of the chat GPT page, right? It's it's a single box that you can type a sentence into, right? And then you get all this powerful AI in the background running. I feel like that's what we're going to start seeing more and more so with the AI in legal tech. Easy to use. It doesn't feel like I'm doing an AI workflow, but I get powerful results. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And as it becomes more iPhone easy, more intuitive, more people will adopt it. And so I could see this becoming a technology forward industry where historically we've been kicking our feet along the way. And I'd imagine more visualization. The generative TPD, but the underlying tech of large language models, I foresee that fundamentally changing information retrieval and making it easier to cut through noise. So you're not trying to categorize every document necessarily. You're trying to find and investigate what happened, the who, what, when, where, why. And I could see more and more tech being aimed at that. It's an exciting time. I think the future is very tech enabled, even for those of us who, who studied existential philosophy and not lambda calculus <laughs> and statistics. So there's nothing wrong with existential philosophy. I mean, they're very grumpy. They're very grumpy. I don't know why I was doing that. I'm much happier now that I read less of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing such cool stuff now. You know? You know, why wouldn't you be happier? You know, it's it's amazing when you find the right spot, just how much you can kind of, you know, grow there. So, yeah, I know we're running over our time, but let me just pull just a little bit more on the thread as you're talking about the change in adoption patterns in lawyers. Historically, what I'm hearing you say, and tell me if I've got this right, is that this tech makes it easier for lawyers to get their work done as opposed to requiring lawyers to adapt their own working style and their own way they're processing it to the technology, the technology adapts to them. Am I hearing that right? I'd say that for sure. But there's also just a healthy dose of FOMO, like fear of missing out. Like when you're watching an episode of South Park or your kids talking about ChatGPT or your grandfather's talking about, you know, doing something with Mid Journey, 
right? Suddenly you're like, well, why am I not using that in my professional life? So sort of like with the internet, once it was on your cell phone, everyone wanted web enabled everything. I think we're going to see the same thing of FOMO plus ease of use leading to mass adoption. And we're seeing it already. Are you seeing the movement on the buyer side as well? Because I think that's what's going to drive change in the law firms. The buyer side, for sure. And it's, you know, the discussions I heard at Clock, every single legal ops person, so that's in-house, was talking about the risks, the benefits, the questions around AI. And it wasn't always all the way to generative AI, because you have to remember, we've got, I mean, some of the stuff we're using is more machine learning. It's been validated for 50, 60 years. So like, it's all, you know, supervised, unsupervised learning. All that stuff is pretty safe. And so people are willing to jump in with both feet to TAR or to concept clustering and social network analysis. The more generative stuff people are investigating now, but I'm just happy the conversation's happening because all this proven really great stuff, people aren't throwing the baby out with the bathwater anymore. They're actually starting to adopt or, or just even use, maybe they already have a relationship with Reveal and they weren't using the brain space side of stuff. They weren't using the AI. Now people are using it more. So that's exciting. Well, it's fascinating times we live in and you, you found the sweet spot in it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're out of time, but I could keep this conversation going forever because it's been just fascinating to me. Thank you so much for making the time, Kat. Oh, my total pleasure. It's a perfect job for me because I like talking about this stuff anytime. So anytime you want to chat, I'm here. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.